0: Welcome to Perfect Night In, I'm your host Neil Perryman, and today I'm delighted to introduce you to a good friend of mine, Mr. Bob Fisher. Bob can be heard on BBC Radio Tees on the evenings and weekends, and he's also written a book about science fiction conventions called Whiffle, Lever to Fall, which has just been re-released and is now available in all good bookshops. Incidentally, I'm in that book, Bob makes me sound like a very needy Blake Seven fan. So entirely accurate then. Anyway, let's meet Bob.
1: Hello, Bob. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, Neil. How's yourself?
0: I'm fine, and I'm really excited (laughs) to share your perfect night in with you.
1: Yeah, well you say that now, you wait till the end, you'll be crying for mercy. So can you explain to us where you would be spending your perfect night in, what kind of chair have you got? I would like a diamond encrusted throne, please, with an anti on the back of it, just for that homely touch. Has everybody so far said the sofa? Yes. I'll go with that, okay. I'm not one to, to book convention here.
0: So you're sitting on your comfortable sofa, it's six o'clock, it's, it's dark outside, we're going to take that as red. Okay. Uh, and And your first choice is... Bagpuss. And why have you chosen Bagpuss, Bob?
1: Bagpuss is very much me um, as a four or five-year-old sitting in front of a coal fire um, in our front room with a mug of warm milk. And when I hear Oliver Postgate's voice... And that transports me back to those times. But it also, it kind of sums up a feeling that I had throughout my childhood that I've really started to explore a little bit as an adult as well, which is this kind of haunted quality. And it's a phrase that's been used a lot when describing the popular culture of the 1970s, a haunted quality. But I distinctly remember as a kid, as a four-year-old, watching Bagpuss and thinking, there's something not quite right about all of this. It's melancholy. It's sepia-tinted. It's about old things and lost things. It's got tatty puppets. The stories in it are very much rooted in a folk tradition Mm -hmm. as well. And a lot of that came from Oliver Postgate the man behind uh, Bagpuss along with along with Peter Firmin uh, who made the, designed and designed uh, the uh, the puppets and the toys and uh, always keen to give credit to uh, Peter's wife Joan Firmin who made them all and doesn't get the credit that she deserves for making these incredible puppets and sets um so i think a lot of, of that feeling came from from all three of them uh, but from Oliver in particular who had this very unusual background you know Oliver Postgate was the son of a political firebrand, he'd had a really unconventional upbringing, and all of that I think pours into his work. So, th- the episode that I wanted to watch uh, for my perfect night in uh, is called the the Owls of Athens, and it's the second episode
0: out of only thirteen.
1: Uh, in de- Well, this is the strange thing, isn't it? It's, you know, we we grow up thinking. There were hundreds of episodes of Bagpuss, and um, I think it was only in the 1990s, possibly, with the advent of the internet, that we began to discover there weren't hundreds of episodes of our favourite kids' TV shows. Um, so yeah, 13 episodes of Bagpuss, um, all perfectly formed as far as I'm concerned. But The Owls of Athens is essentially a story about, it's about a cushion. Um, it's about a cushion that comes into uh, into story. Shop. Um, in fact, it's, it's not even the full cushion. It's the cover, and it transpires it's the uh, the, uh, the the cover of a cushion that belonged to the bony king of nowhere, um, which is a, a story that is told in uh, in this episode of Bagpuss, um, and and uh, accompanied by a song. The bony king of nowhere. He sat upon his throne. He didn't much like sitting there because his throne was. His throne was made of stone
0: His throne was made of marble
1: white Its feet were made of gold It was a royal throne all right But oh dear it was It was extremely cold Uh, The song The Bony King of Nowhere is one of my favourite songs It's beautifully performed uh, by by Sandra Kerr and John Faulkner um, who had been brought in by Oliver Postgate as... um, to give a different feel, to give a deliberately folky feel to Bagpuss. So I I love this episode and I've always loved Bagpuss and as I said to you it takes me back to that time in our front room in very very simple but slightly melancholy and haunted times as well. Now I can bring this bang up to date because in 2014 I was working uh, on the radio doing the the local music introducing stuff that I do for BBC Tees and I had a young performer in the studio called Laura Victoria who's a very good singer-songwriter based in Newcastle and, uh, and, and a folk performer, and she started talking about how she'd become interested in folk music and how she was doing a folk music degree at Newcastle University, and and uh, it, this is on air, it, she said, oh yeah, and and, and I learnt this song from my tutor at university, Sandra Kerr, and she was saying, and I was like, what? What? hang on, <laughs> can you rewind a little bit? Did you say Sandra Kerr? I said was Sandra Kerr like from Bagpuss. Oh yeah, I think so. Yeah. Black so, Right, I'm going to have to investigate this. So I, I went uh, on uh, the Newcastle University website. <laughs> Indeed, it was that Sandra Kerr. Um, I emailed her through the website thinking she might not be interested in talking about bagpuss anymore. Uh, but she got back to me and she is. She absolutely loves bagpuss, still holds it in very high regard. Um, and we've become really good friends. Since then, myself and Sandra. And uh, she signs her emails to me as Mad the Rag, which is Madeline the doll, because she's the voice of Madeline the Ragdoll in Bagpuss as well. So uh, uh, this episode has a resonance for me as well, because Sandra has one item from the original sets of Bagpuss, and it is the cushion from The Bony King of Nowhere, the cover of a cushion fit for a king. Have you touched this cushion? Of course I have. <laughs> I said to Sandra, can I touch your cushion, Sandra? And she said yes. So Bagpuss placed the cushion neatly in
0: the front of the window and left it there, so that if the person it really belonged to should happen to come
1: past, they would see it and come into the shop to collect it. And so their work was done. So Bagpuss is all of those things to me, and I love it to bits. It's kind of comfort TV for me, Bagpuss.
0: Okay, Bob. So, staying with the melancholic theme, (laughs) your next choice is.
1: My next choice is episode one of the Doctor Who story, Logopolis. I bet everybody that you've spoken to so far has been far too cool to pick Doctor Who as one of their selections, even though, let's face it, everybody you speak to is going to have Doctor Who as their favourite bloody programme. I'm going for it. Uh, I love Doctor Who, Doctor Who has been such a big part of my life, and I've chosen Legopolis because... This is, the, this is the Doctor Who story that made me fall in love with Doctor Who. Um, I'd liked Doctor Who before, I'd watched Doctor Who before, uh, but Legopolis was the story where I became somebody who was obsessed with Doctor Who. This is, this is the beginning of my peak fandom years. And I think this is uh, for one reason. One of the many things that, that really fascinates me is the combination of the mundane and the fantastical. And you get that in Legopolis. Loads of my favourite literature, films, TV programmes have this contrast between everyday events and extraordinary otherworldly events. And Doctor Who often doesn't do that. Um, even when Doctor Who is set on Earth, it's not a recognisable Earth. It's often like almost like an Avengers Britain, of quaint villages and curious goings-on. But Legopolis is absolutely set in the Britain of 1981, and that captivated me. I was eight years old when this episode was broadcast. Uh, So it's the sight of the TARDIS materialising at the side of... it's the hard shoulder, it's a lay-by of a dual carriageway. It's the sight of uh, Tom Baker's doctor, emerging from the TARDIS, and I I watched this episode the other night, it's still a scene that sends shivers down my spine. I tingle um, in a way that I I very rarely do when I watch TV these days. (laughs) The scene where the Doctor emerges from the TARDIS and he sees, across a busy dual carriageway, the figure of the Watcher. This mysterious, mystical, disturbing (laughs) figure, a plain white figure. It looks like a ghost. It looks like a ghost. Standing on the other side of a dual carriageway in a field behind a fence, it it's like it's like something from M. R. James. It's a, it's a ghost that has become tangible, and the look on the doctor's face at that point we know that he knows what that is. We know that he knows it isn't good news for him. I think it's uh, was it was it Percy Shelley. I think it's Percy Shelley that just before he died. Saw a figure, like a doppelganger of himself, pointing out to sea, and you know he absolutely put on record that he'd seen this before he died at sea. That scene in Legopolis, I think, is possibly a, a a tribute to that moment. It's absolutely spine tingling, but I think the atmosphere of, of Legopolis Part One is just wonderful. It's often described as funereal, uh, which I think I can see why people say that. For me, it's not quite that. It's kind of ill. It's, there's a sickness to Logopolis. Again, it's that melancholy. And the episode is about... I mean, the whole story is about, you know, as the Doctor himself says... The more you put things together, the more they keep falling apart. And that's the essence of the second law of thermodynamics. And I never heard a truer word spoken. Come on. It's about entropy. It's about decay. It's about things just running down and being at the end of their lives, including the doctor himself. It's that scene in the cloister room where he tugs at a bit of ivy and the masonry from between the stonework falls down to the ground. It's so sad, uh, but it's so evocative as well. I mean, I absolutely watched Doctor Who round up my grand's house. It's become such a cliche for, for people of our generation. Yeah, we watched Doctor Who at our grandparents' houses, but we did because we went to see our grandparents on weekends. So when you think that I watched this incredibly atmospheric and evocative piece of TV in the midst of, you know, there will have been me and my gran and my parents and probably my uncle Trevor. And there will have been like a little tray of cakes of Viennese whirls and almond slices and a dog or two loping around the front room Um, amidst all this hubbub. The atmosphere of Legopolis still came over to me, and I can absolutely pinpoint this episode as the one where I fell in love with Doctor Who, and from then on, there was no turning back. Okay, Bob, so you're feeling quite melancholic now, and we're going to
0: change the pace up a bit with your next choice. It's.
1: It's Tucker's Luck. (laughs) You say we're going to change the pace, we're going to bring the atmosphere down even further. I mean, for those unaware, Tucker's Luck is... It's a spin-off of Grange Hill. I think that the thinking being that Tucker Jenkins, uh, played by the brilliant Todd Carty, superb performer all the way through Grange Hill and Tucker's Luck, and the rest of his career he's an actor I love, he'd been such a popular character in Grange Hill, um, an iconic character in Grange Hill, uh, that it would be a shame to waste his character just because Tucker had left school. You know, it's normally the end of characters in Grange Hill. So uh, Tucker's luck, I'm sure, was created as a as a, a vehicle to, to capitalise upon the popularity of Tucker Jenkins as a character. But, I mean, it belongs to a genre in its own right, I think, Tucker's luck. Uh, there was a spate of TV series around that time that I can only... <laughs> Who would really describe as like, belonging to Thatcher's Britain with an F on the start of it? Tucker's luck, I would lump in with series like Johnny Jarvis, mm-hmm. uh, Boys and the Black mm-hmm. stuff, some of the stuff that Channel 4 was mm-hmm. doing at the time, series like Scully. Mm-hmm. But you know what I mean? It's very mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. of that. Um, Political children's TV. Well it, it absolutely is and I, and I don't think it's a genre that exists anymore and I don't think it's a genre that existed for very long at the time but Tucker's Luck belongs to that genre and if my previous choices you know Bagpuss and uh, Doctor Who, Legopolis, they're the kind of whimsical side of me as a kid and the way that I vanished inside my own head. Tucker's Luck is the reality of what our family's life was like at the time, and uh, my dad was frequently unemployed. My mum worked in a succession of part-time jobs, you know, in our school kitchens at one point, and it was very much a case of scraping by, as I'm sure it was for a lot of families. I was going to say in the Northeast, but in in Britain mm-hmm. at that time, we never really knew when the next pay packet might be coming from. Um, and Tucker's luck is absolutely all about that so it's Tucker Jenkins and his friends Alan and Tommy they've left school at the age of you know we assume 16 they don't really have any qualifications and they're trying to scrape a living by whatever means that they can and when I watch Tucker's look and I see that world of building sites of wasteland of knackered old motorbikes in yards of empty shop units that is the Britain of the early 1980s and of my childhood, you know, of, of knackered old football grounds with, ter- you know, cracked concrete terraces with the weeds growing through. And just this air of desperation.
0: You should have been here an hour ago.
1: Why? What happened?
0: Your box was closed. Yeah, well, I didn't have no money for the bus.
1: I'm out of work, you see.
0: Well, you've missed your signing on time. So? So you have to go and see the supervisor. And? And your gyro will probably be late, if he thinks you're still entitled to it.
1: Same old record.
0: You know you're supposed to sign on on time.
1: Look, there's me box here. Can't you just get me fired out?
0: Next, please.
1: It's not my fault there's no crappy jobs.
0: And it's not my fault you can't get out of bed once a fortnight.
1: But within that, a lot of humour, a lot of black humour, and a lot of hope as well. And I think the hope in Tucker's Look is the hope of youth. It's almost like, God. you know, I can, I, can, I can do an analogy here. It's almost like the young people in Tucker's Look, they're like those weeds pushing through the concrete of the, of the broken football grounds. They, Tucker and his friends still believe that they can make something of their lives, that they can do this. And it's that that gets you through it. It's such an evocative series for me. Um, even like, wait, the, the, like the orange job centres that were in every high street at the time. You know, they transport me because when I see Tucker and his mates traipsing into those, I just think of my poor dad and, and, and mum traipsing into the one on Teesside, you know, that they had to go to on a regular basis. It's all in there. I think it's, it's a time capsule of Britain in the early 1980s and I'm very glad it exists. Your next choice is a big surprise to anybody that knows you. <laughs> Yeah, Last of the Summer Wine, um, I guess some people might know, is a series that's occupied my thoughts a lot in recent years. Since 2011, uh, me and my friend Andrew Smith have been attempting to watch every episode of Last of the Summer Wine in order, blogging as we go. Unlike some people, we haven't finished yet. We're still going. Yeah, no, we have done this. We took a show to Edinburgh. Um, in August 2018, based on our love of Last of the Summer Wine. So it's fair to say that it's a series that means an awful lot to me. And which uh, episode have you chosen to represent it, Last of the Summer Wine? I mean, there were 295 of them, so it was a difficult choice to make. I've chosen uh, an episode called Full Steam Behind, which is the first episode of series five. And it's, it's essentially um, the, the story of uh, Foggy, Clegg and Compo, three main characters at this stage, going to see a vintage steam train uh, because uh, the local railway line has been reopened um, right. as a tourist attraction with steam trains running along it and they go to see like the opening ceremony and to, uh, to bask in the golden age of steam. You are about to see a steam engine. A steam engine, lovingly restored. The official reopening of the line, and we can be part of it. We can be among the passengers on this first historic journey. As long as we don't have to walk. Last of the Summer Wine is a programme that I love because of, because of its atmosphere. I keep saying, you know, these, I, I drink in the atmosphere of these programmes, and I, and, I, and that's, that's what does it for me. When I watched Last of the Summer Wine, it is an atmosphere of... Gentle bleakness, I think, in the early years. It's melancholic again, isn't it? It it is, isn't it? (laughs) Cheer (laughs) up! Neil Perryman has just told me to cheer up, everybody. I'm in deep trouble. Um, The early episodes of Last of the Summer Wine, in particular, have—I mean. They're like Alan Bennett, directed by Ken Loach. They they show a bleak Yorkshire. They show a Yorkshire that's post-industrial. Uh, Homeforth, where it was filmed, is covered in soot. All the buildings are black in the early episodes of Last of the Summer Wine. And, you know, your main characters are three men who nowadays would arguably be considered to be in their prime. You know, they're not old men at the start of the series. Brian Wilde, believe it or not, was 48 when he started playing Foggy Dewhurst. uh, But back in the 70s, they've been written off by society. They're filling their time, and they do so in this episode uh, by going to see a vintage steam train. Now there are several things i love about this episode one of them is the fact that it's a very rare occurrence of foggy being correct right foggy in last of summer wine normally comes up with ridiculous harebrained schemes and compo and clegg go along with them for the sake of a quiet life knowing that they're stupid on this occasion all foggy wants to do is go and see a vintage steam train what's wrong with that but the other two never stop complaining He takes them to uh, an an abandoned railwayman's hut at the side of the railway line, and it's full of memorabilia and old artefacts and stuff from the golden age of steam, and Compo and Clegg aren't interested. They actively want to go home. And and I say, why? This is what a a day out this is. It's lovely. But it's an episode that... Well, first of all, it does transport me back to my childhood again because Last of the Summer Wine was even though for the first 10 years or so, it wasn't broadcast on a Sunday night, um, it has an essence of Sundayness about it. I, I, I can't hear the opening theme to Last of the Summer Wine without a nagging feeling that I've got some geography homework somewhere to be getting on with. Um, so it does take me back to Sunday nights, the one night of the week when you, you had a bath and washed your hair. Can you imagine? How did we not stink to high heaven? Uh, so it takes me back to that. Um, but also, uh, one of the, the first expeditions uh, that myself and Andrew had uh, for the Summer Winehouse blog, was uh, we, we went on a day trip in October 2012 to the uh, Keithley Worth Valley railway line, which is quite... I mean, it absolutely is the railway line in this episode. Um, and it's uh, this episode depicts the opening of it uh, back in the mid-1970s. Uh, but the line is beautiful. You can still go up and down it on a vintage steam train, which obviously we did. And uh, the train, the actual train that's featured in this episode is in the depot at Oxon railway station at the end of the line so we had a little walk around that as well and it's beautiful so this is an episode of great resonance for me and I love it to bits.
0: Okay Bob it's 7.45 but before we start your next choice have you brought any snacks with you?
1: Have you not got anything in? It's
0: your choice. I didn't know what to. I didn't know what to bring.
1: Do, there's a there's a cake that I've wanted to find for years, and it's a cake that again this transports me back to my grand's house on a Saturday night watching Doctor Who, um, and we used to get these from Shipman's the Baker's um, in Acklam in Middlesbrough, and it went in my head. It's called a chocolate flake cake. It's a solid rectangle of cake, of chocolate cake with cream through the middle of it but the entire exterior of it is coated in a shell of chocolate with little flakes dotted all the way along it so every slice would have a flake on the top of it but the key here obviously was to get an end slice because then you'd get the shell of chocolate on the outside if you got a slice in the middle it would only have the shell of chocolate on the edges of it. But if you got one from the end, you got the full, like the exterior wall of chocolate. Did getting one from the middle
0: make you feel melancholic?
1: I think everything made me feel pretty melancholic. It still does. What about your favourite packet of crisps? <laughs> Monster Munch. Which flavour? Do you know what? Um, people balk at this sometimes. Uh, but for me, the only Monster Munch flavour worth its salt, and I imagine there is a bit of salt in it, um, is Flaming Hot. <laughs> which uh, apparently is something of an arriviste on the Monster Munch scene. (laughs) It wasn't available in the golden age of Monster Munch in the 1970s and 80s, but Flaming Hot... If I I choose to live on one food for the rest of my life, it would be Flaming Hot Monster Munch. Once a year, our monsters take a holiday.
0: They relax by the purple patterned sea, bask on the turquoise sandy beach,
1: and of course, try the local snacks which, as usual, even them feeling less than satisfied. Fortunately, someone remembered the Monster Munch. The holiday atmosphere filled the air as our monsters fill up on their favourite snack. Monster Munch, for monster appetites.
0: It's 7.45 Bob, and your next choice is a programme I've never seen before. <laughs>
1: service. You've never seen, it. never seen it. You've been doing with your life. You've been watching <laughs> Doctor Who. How many times have you seen some episodes of Doctor Who? I'm going to take you back to late 1983. And I'm sitting in my school library, Levendale Primary School in Yarm, and my teacher, Mr. Milward, who often did this kind of thing, he's gathered the class together and he's going to read to us and he's going to read to us from a book that I'd never heard of before. I'd never heard of the writer before, Uh, but it's The Weird Stone of Brisingerman by Alan Garner. And the minute he began reading from it, I knew that I'd found my favourite writer, and nothing that I have seen or read in the intervening 35 years has dissuaded me from that opinion. Alan Garner is my favourite writer. Alan Garner will always be my favourite writer. Alan Garner is an extraordinary figure in the field of British literature. So his early books are, I mean, they're children's books. There's, I, 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 th- I think he has disputed that he ever wrote them with children in mind, but they're very child-friendly his earliest books. The Weavestone of Brisingerman is the first one that he wrote. It's got a sequel called The Moon of Gomrath. Um, there is a third book called Elidore that starts to explore slightly more complex themes. And the fourth book that he wrote was The Owl Service. It's, it's difficult to describe. The Owl Service is essentially the story of three young people who are in a holiday cottage in Wales in a remote Welsh valley, um, and they're cooped up together and they find in the attic of the cottage a dinner service that appears to have an abstract pattern around the outside of every plate. But when Alison, um, who is uh, the the girl of the trio, um, also accompanied by by Roger and Gwyn, um, Alison uh, begins to trace the pattern around the outside of the plates onto pieces of paper and discovers that she is able to fold them up into the shape of owls and essentially what happens is that Alice and Roger and Gwyn find themselves recreating a story from Welsh folklore. Um, It's a genuine Welsh folk story, it's part of the Mabinogion um, Welsh myth cycle and they're recreating a doomed love triangle they are becoming the characters in this folk story and it's a story that has been repeated within the confines of the valley over and over with different people assuming the different roles the tv adaptation uh, was made in 1969 and it's one of the most complex atmospheric and melancholic oh there's certainly a bit of that about it Inappropriate is the word I was about to use. It's an era when children's television, I think, often gave little heed to the fact that parts of the audience could be disturbed or confused by the things that they saw in the name of children's television. Um, There is an air of claustrophobic, simmering sexuality to the owl service that I don't think would make it Part of a modern program, you know, even aimed at teenagers. There, there are lots of crossed legs and manes of hair being tossed around in the owl service, and that's that's just Edwin Richfield. <laughs> um, no, it's it has an atmosphere that's that's really really affecting. Um, and again, it's 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 that that friction between the ordinary everyday uh, world and the utterly fantastical and supernatural. It's when those two things collide that I really start to get interested.
0: There you are. It's an owl. Yes, it is. An owl. No, that's quite good. I like him.
1: Her. You can tell? OK, I like her. Hello there. Don't do that. You what? Oh, Don't touch her. Like, I've got to know Alan and his family a little bit in recent years, just from attending events over at their gaff. Um, and it's something that's very, very precious to me. Um, anyway, the upshot of this, essentially, is that the owl service is real. Um, it's, it's a genuine dinner service um, with the pattern on it, as described in the book, as seen in the TV series. Um, and it's owned by uh, Alan and his family. It was originally owned by Alan's uh, mother-in-law, um, his wife's called Griselda, and it was her mother's uh, dinner service. I think that's right. But I've seen the service. Did um, you touch the plate? I can, I can go one better than that. Um, the plate was designed, the whole service was designed by uh, Christopher Dresser, who's uh, a well-known uh, Victorian uh, plate designer. And Christopher Dresser has links to Middlesbrough. So Alan and Griselda and their family donated a plate uh, from the actual owl service to the Dorman Museum in Middlesbrough, and guess who was charged with the task of transporting it from Cheshire to Middlesbrough. Yeah, I've never driven so carefully in my life, but I can proudly say that I've driven a plate from the Owl service. Back across the M62 to you know, T-side.
0: I thought touching the cushion in Bagpuss was <laughs> impressive.
1: There was a point where, you know, we, we pulled over at Birch Services because we all needed a bit of a break and to stretch our legs. And I thought, should I leave somebody in the car with it? What happens if the car gets nicked? But no, the Owl Service is extraordinary. Alan Garner is extraordinary. And um, yeah, I so say he will remain my favourite writer forever.
0: The Owl Service takes us up to 8.15. And you've chosen a very specific play for today
1: for your next choice, Bob. I've chosen Pender's Fen
0: uh,
1: by David Rudkin, uh, directed by the great Alan Clarke, which I can't claim any childhood memories for this one. I think if I had seen it during my childhood, I would have been even more melancholy than I already was. Uh, Pender's Fen is something that I came to only a couple of years ago when it was released on DVD, Blu-ray, at the BFI, put it out. But having that interest in folklore and folk myth, um, it was obviously something that I was drawn to. And I bought it and I watched it and it very quickly became one of my favourite ever pieces of television. I think it's an extraordinary piece of TV uh, in so many different ways. And we talked about Alan Garner, about the Owl Service, and I think David Rudkin um, is possibly cut from similar cloth um, to Alan Garner, I think. Again, it's that combination of the fantastical and the everyday, but also the way in which uh, story and power can be contained within the landscape. Uh, So the Owl Service is about a folk story that's kept within this very specific Welsh valley and affects deeply and profoundly the people um, who visit or inhabit that valley. And Pender's Fen is also about the way in which something deeper, something more profound than the everyday is buried beneath our feet. I mean, literally in some scenes in Pender's Fen. But it's essentially the story of a a troubled teenager uh, called Stephen Franklin, who is kind of wrapped up in his own... his own world of restraint, really. Some of the restraints... That he finds himself being subjected to are put there by his school, but I think which is a very military school uh, some of them are put there by society and the fact that he is the son of an Anglican vicar but a lot of them appear to be very self-generated he's very harsh on himself Um, he's a very uptight young man and the catalyst for the events in Pender's Fen appear to be essentially Stephen's dawning realisation that he's gay and that goes against many of his own beliefs. He finds himself in the midst of a series of supernatural events that seem to be that older, deeper Britain coming to shake him out of his own self-imposed constraints. So he's visited by an angel. He's visited by a demon. He's visited in one extraordinary scene by the ghost of Edward Elgar, who's his favourite composer. That is, it's just an extraordinary dialogue between a troubled teenager and and a supernatural figure. It's filmed absolutely naturally, as if they're, as if Elgar is a real person who acknowledges that he's dead and he shouldn't really be there. Have they uh, cracked the enigma? Yet? My secret is. The, the famous tune that, that fits with my my Enigma theme has anyone identified it? Oh, oh, that's Sir. Well, they have tried combining your theme with all sorts of tunes, old Lang Syne in the minor, even God Save the King.
0: None of the combinations is really convincing.
1: It's a phenomenal scene, and ultimately, um, he is. Well, redeemed by the figure of uh, King Pender himself who was the last pagan King uh, in England eighth um, century King and it's Pender who really rises from beneath the rolling hills of Worcestershire and imbues Stephen with this wilder uh, more natural England and, uh, and you know it's it's a it's a piece of TV that's often attracted people that have an interest in that kind of, um, let's call it fantasy, and, and absolutely I'm one of them. Um, but I think it's a political piece as well, and that's that's David Rudkin himself has, I think almost tried to distance himself from the fantasy elements of it, and said, no, it's it's a piece about politics, and about the way in which we must break through the constraints of society, whether they're imposed upon us, or whether they're self-imposed, and find our true selves. Um, so I, I, I genuinely think it's one of the most profound if not the most profound pieces of tv ever made again i love the atmosphere of it it's the stillness those still shots of the countryside of the power within those landscapes um, just haunts me and uh, it's not a program that gives up its secrets easily and it's one that I, it's, uh, I, I hadn't seen it at all until a couple of years ago but i've watched it again and again and every time i watch it I get something else from it, another layer peels back and I will continue to watch it and I hope that continues to happen.
0: That edition of play for the day takes us up to 10 o'clock and your next choice has a very sad theme tune. There is a fifth dimension
1: beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the Twilight Zone. Ten o'clock is a good time to watch an episode of The Twilight Zone, isn't it? It's perfect. And
0: which episode have you chosen?
1: I've chosen an episode called A Stop at Willoughby, um, which isn't the first episode of The Twilight Zone that I ever saw. Um, I can tell you what that was and when I saw it. It's quite a historic date, actually. Uh, The first episode of The Twilight Zone I ever saw uh, was called Black Leather Jackets. And it's not one of the finest episodes of The Twilight Zone, but I actually watched it on election night in 1987, um, when in a lull... In proceedings, uh, BBC's election coverage. Uh, my dad, who was sitting up with me to watch, I said, really the first time that I'd really taken an interest in a general election, to be honest." And my dad was sitting up with me to watch the coverage. Um, and we're, you know, not an awful lot happening. There are these little breaks, election coverage. Uh, he said, "Go on, have a flick through the channels and see what else is on." And we put Channel Four on, and just starting was The Twilight Zone, which I'd never heard of before. But my dad apparently had been uh, something of a fan of it back in the early 1960s when it was made. And, um, and said, oh, you know, in, in, in my dad's typical fashion said, oh, I've seen this one. <laughs> yes, 27 years earlier, dad. I, I don't think we can count this as a bloody repeat. <laughs> but I watched it and uh, something about it really chimed with me. And it wasn't just the melancholy, Neil. Um, It was the fact that it was of its time. It's very recognisably a series from the early 1960s, um, but it's so beautifully made. It absolutely crackles the Twilight Zone. They're generally brilliantly directed. They look amazing. They've got these great, intense performances. And in Rod Serling, who's a great creative genius and and, and writer uh, of many of the Twilight Zone's best episodes. Uh, they had a visionary uh, TV screenwriter. Uh, lots of Rod Serling's Twilight Zone stories have a social message, but I've actually chosen one that doesn't. Uh, so A Stop at Willoughby um, essentially is about... It's about a very harassed and put-upon businessman uh, called Gart Williams, who is... Like, in just a horrible job, he works for an advertising agency and he's not great at it and he's got a hideous boss whose catchphrase is it's a push, push, push business, Williams a push, push, push business and you'd think that he'd find some respite when he goes home to his wife but his wife is hideous as well and just tells him to get a grip all the time and she wants the latest gadgets and a bigger house and what have you so his life is fairly miserable Um, and on the way home from work every day he gets the train home from work on this, this commuter train. It's dark and it's snowing outside. He keeps dropping off and every time he falls asleep on the train, he finds himself dreaming, we assume, of the train stopping in a town called Willoughby. And Willoughby is just his idyllic town. And it's Huckleberry Finn. It's Mark Twain. The band's playing on the bandstand. The kids are in their straw hats and they're off to go fishing. It's a summer's day. It's just glorious. It's everything that he wants out of life is to live in Willoughby. Willoughby. It was summer. Very warm. Kids were barefooted.
0: One of them had a fishing pole. It all looked like a courier and Ives painting bandstand bicycles wagons I've never seen such serenity it was the way people must have lived a hundred years ago
1: (laughs) crazy dream so this keeps happening to him his real life gets more and more horrible his fantasy dream stops in this fictional town of Willoughby become more and more enticing. And you can see written across his face the feeling that he wants to live in Willoughby. He wants to leave everything in the real world behind him and, and live in Willoughby. What's your policy on spoilers here, Neil? It's about 60 years old, this programme, isn't it? True, so it is, um, yeah. I think if you haven't seen it by now, <laughs> if you don't like spoilers, skip forward about a minute. Look away. So at the end of the episode... Uh, after a crucial scene in which you know, he throws everything up in the air at the office, he phones his wife and tells her that he can't take anymore, he can't cope, he's clearly suicidal. And his wife just essentially tells him to get a grip and she doesn't want to hear it. Um, he then makes the decision that when he falls asleep on the train on the way home and when he dreams of the train stopping in Willoughby in 1888, that he is going to get off the train and he's going to stay there, and he does that. And the relief on Gart Williams' face, the relief that seeps out of the TV screen at that point, is absolutely palpable. And the closing scene of the episode is back in the modern day, where we learn that in the real world, Gart Williams has thrown himself from the train, and he's dead. And his lifeless body is collected from the tracks, by Willoughby and Son, funeral director. So there's, a, you know, there's, there's the nice Tales of the Unexpected-style twist uh, at the end there, uh, became a trademark of The Twilight Zone. But I just think it's, it's an episode that's... D- despite the fact that the main character dies at the end of it, it's an incredibly feel-good <laughs> episode because I think we've all been in those situations where you do think, I can't handle this. Everything is just too stressful. I want to live in a Mark Twain novel. Um, And uh, for that reason, this is my favourite episode of The Twilight Zone and it's the one that I tend to go back to when I want to watch one. The Twilight Zone takes us up to 10.30, Bob, but before we start, your final
0: choice, can I get you a drink?
1: Well, as you know, Neil, I'm firmly of the belief that alcohol is a poison. I refuse to throw myself into the kind of licentious lifestyle that you so happily endorse. But if you're going to put a gun to me head here, I'll have a Campari and soda, please. (laughs) Because <laughs> it's, it's, it's the only drink I've ever tried that tastes a little bit like old wardrobes. Yeah, nice colour, isn't it?
0: Campari, with soda, with lemonade, with tonic, but always with pleasure. Were you truly wafted here from paradise? No, look near, Paul. While I go off and make you a Campari and soda, let's begin your final choice.
1: Monty Python's Life of Brian A little while ago I did a radio topic um, on BBC Tees and invite listeners to send us a text with their stories and the topic was stuff that you really loved as a kid that your parents wholeheartedly disapproved of Uh, bonus points available if this stuff was clearly absolutely brilliant and your parents (laughs) thought it was rubbish and I expected loads of musical suggestions because that tends to be the case, doesn't it? You know, the stuff that you love on top of the pops, your parents just think is an absolute tuneless racket. Um, But I was surprised to find out that what I actually got uh, were lots of suggestions of comedy Mm programmes and films. And the one that came up again and again and again was The Young Ones. Yeah. Have I surprised you? Yes, you have. Uh, Yeah, The Young Ones was the one that, that... Parents, kind of understandably, I guess, disapproved of because it it wasn't specifically, particularly made for them. Um, However, I never had that problem with my parents, and this is where I begin to feel very grateful for the fact that I had parents who kind of shared my sense of humour, and my dad, in particular, loved. The Young Ones, and I, I am possibly the only person in the country who, as a 10-year-old, watched The Young Ones with my dad, and we both laughed at it together. And when I look back at the reason why my dad found The Young Ones so funny, I look back at the stuff that he'd always liked in comedy as a man that grew up listening to the goons on the radio in the in the 1950s when his parents said what is that bloody rubbish it's not even it doesn't even make sense it's just a noise turn it off um and the one that he'd absolutely loved uh, in the late 60s early 70s was obviously monty python's flying circus so when you when you know that you can see why a man like that would love the young ones and Monty Python, when I discovered Monty Python in earnest, um, which I think would have been, I think it was repeated in quite some length in about 1987... I'd certainly seen it by 1987 um, and was fully aware of lots of its episodes and its most famous sketches. Did you not
0: come to the films first? No. I I came to the films first. uh, Holy Grail, I think, was released on video in the
1: 80s. Ah, well, here's the crux of the story, you see. Because having watched Monty Python's Flying Circus on these repeats uh, on uh, BBC One in the mid-1980s, what then happened was my mum surprised us on Christmas Day, 1987 because we were possibly the last family in the world that didn't have a video recorder by Christmas 1987. Because my dad's philosophy was, well, it's bad enough watching this stuff once. Why would I want to watch it again? So, but dad, you can record one programme and watch the one on the other side. (laughs) There's never one bloody programme on that I want to watch, let alone two at the same time. All of this stuff. Uh, but my, despite all this, my mum thought it would be lovely. Christmas Day, 1987. Two surprises, and after all the main presents had been opened, she went upstairs and said, there's something else, and came down with a video recorder. Not only a video recorder, but two videos that she'd rented for Christmas from our local video shop in Yarm High Street. Uh, one of which was uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and the other one was Monty Python's Life of Brian. And we spent Christmas morning, what heathens, what heretics, Christmas morning, 1987, we all watched Monty Python's Life of Brian (laughs) from start to finish. Um, and it, it was then and I think it remains the funniest film I've ever seen And there are so many bits that leave me utterly breathless with laughter the one that always gets me every single time is is Michael Palin and Biggest Dickus what about you do you find it visible
0: will I say the name Biggest
1: Do you find it visible? It's magnificent. I absolutely love it to bits. And it makes me think so much of me and my dad watching comedy together. So Monty Python's Life of Brian is a treasured memory for me and a connection to to my dad and my mom.
0: Quite a melancholic ending, with people dying on a cross.
1: Oh, no, it's not. It's (laughs) joyous. They sing, always look on the bright side of life. You're determined to bring melancholy into everything, aren't you? You've dragged down the tone of this podcast. I came in here wanting a nice time, and I'm going home feeling like I want to end it all. And I blame you for that, Neil Perryman. So let's take a look at Bob Fisher's Perfect Night In. It starts at 6 o'clock with Bagpuss, probably the latest time of the day that he's ever been shown. Close on His Heels at 6.15, Tom Baker stars in the first episode of his final Doctor Who adventure. And then Tucker's Luck is at 6.45. A classic episode of Last of the Summer Wine, Keeps Our Spirits Up at 7.15, followed by The Owl Service at 7.45. Then at 8.15, Alan Clarke's unforgettable film in the Play for Today series Pender's Fen. The Twilight Zone is at 10, and we round off the evening with Monty Python's Life of Brian. Yes, Bob Fisher's been a very naughty boy going with this lineup, but it's his perfect night in.
0: Okay, Bob, one last question. If you could pick anybody living or dead to share your perfect night in with, who would it be?
1: Sue Perryman. She's a really good laugh, I think, and she knows a lot about old Telly.
0: Thanks, Bob. You've been a star.
1: You're very welcome. it's the
0: perfect night in. It's the end.